Thirty years ago, the World Wide Web was hailed as a transformative breakthrough in connecting civilization, a new dawn in global openness and collaboration. While we can celebrate its many benefits to our ever more connected economy and society, over the last decade, a growing litany of problems has emerged. Critics bemoan the exploitation of consumers' privacy and business models built on surveillance, the spread of disinformation and hateful content, and how power has ended up concentrated in a few large companies, abusing that power and making it hard for startups to break through. Something has gone wrong, but how do we fix it? Efforts are underway to redesign the way the internet works, with a focus on putting citizens in greater control of their data. This is New Foundations, a podcast about innovation and social impact from the Economist Intelligence Unit. On today's episode, we explore what a more user-centric data economy might mean for the dominant businesses and business models of our day, and ask who will be the winners and losers in the future of the data economy. This podcast is supported by Pictay Wealth Management, and we thank them for their support. To understand how to fix the data economy and what comes next, we need to understand what went wrong. And here opinions differ. Some critics blame the advertising model at the core of the modern internet, calling it the web's original sin. What began as an elegant way to honour the ideals of freedom and openness at the core of the early internet by keeping services free, all the while making money, has grown increasingly sophisticated and complex as a whole industry has concentrated on developing ways to mine consumers' data, to better target advertising and convert our attention into sales. The current orthodoxy is that you gather the big data for free because people generate it as a side effect of interacting with advertising model systems. This is Jaron Lanier, author, computer scientist and early internet pioneer, as well as being considered the father of virtual reality. He says we're being short-changed in this transaction. Thus far, we've had a few very obvious examples where people have either been unpaid or underpaid for their data. Uh, an example is that the rise of social media as we know it, such as YouTube, was initially funded by outright theft of what had formerly been commercial data from particularly the content industries and particularly in the case of YouTube music. And as a musician, I was quite pissed off about it. There's been some degree of correction to that in more recent years. However, it's still the case that the biggest corporations are built upon value that's provided for free by users for the most part. You could say that the value of a company like Facebook and its various brands like WhatsApp and Instagram and all that, um, you could say that that value is a mixture of having conquered a network effect pinnacle that is very easy to defend and having all this data from people, which is the thing traded through the monopoly-like stature of having that pinnacle. And one could say the same thing about a company like Google. There is a growing consensus that major internet companies are abusing their power. The problem that we really see, I think, came about 
because of that original message of mixed motives. Tim O'Reilly is founder of O'Reilly Media, another web pioneer and an internet commentator known for popularizing terms like open source and web 2.0. You know, there was an idealism at the heart of the early internet. We're going to basically be user-centered. Jeff Bezos at Amazon says their goal is to be the most user-centric uh, you know, business on earth. And for all the things that people might complain about, you know, they, they're relentlessly focused on efficiency. They were focused on users. But in the last three or four years, they introduced advertising. And all of a sudden, you're no longer getting what all of the collective intelligence signals say, this is the best result for you. Instead, you're getting, this is the best result for the people who pay us to be featured. O'Reilly says that the advertising model has spoiled what were once consumer-centric companies, which now leverage their dominance, harming not only consumers, but advertisers and merchants too. Google can direct traffic to its own properties, while Amazon can use its wealth of data on shopping habits to offer its own products and charge other merchants a fee to promote theirs. He calls this leveraging of platform power algorithmic rent. Similarly, on Google, they kept this Chinese wall between advertising and the what they call organic search results up until you know, 2013, 2014. And then more and more, they began to feature the advertising front and center. Until today, for a commercial search, a search that's commercially valuable, there are the organic search results are almost invisible. It's completely dominated by advertising and Google's own properties that they're trying to uh, route people to, which, of course, is part of the cycle of them being able to expose more and more advertising. So that's the, the, the problem writ small, which is the business model eventually pits the goals of users against the goals of the people who are paying the bills, the advertisers. This whole model of surveillance capitalism has become the norm, at least for social media companies, uh, search engines. Maritia Sharka is International Policy Director at Stanford University's Cyber Policy Center and a former MEP. She says that the misuse of data by firms is just one symptom of a web that has become overly corporatized, which hurts citizens. That, I think, applies to, you know, products and services that are not just on the web, but also in home appliances, in smart cities, the development of critical infrastructure, defending it, the uh, deployment of, of defensive, but also offensive capabilities to defend the homeland. I mean, these commercially driven digital ecosystems are uh, encroaching really upon the role of the state. And so I think what we've seen is that digitization essentially comes down to privatization and that the public interest, democratic values, human rights, uh, the weighing and balancing between those, those different rights and fundamental freedoms is coming under corporate pressure. I think that explains a lot of why data is treated the way it is uh, and why there's also growing pressure about this outsized power for Silicon Valley-based and other giants. The advertising business model has resulted in firms optimizing for engagement, for eyeballs, to give over more data and see more advertising, rather than provide the best application or service to customers. While the principles are pretty clear and not necessarily controversial, the way in which they're at stake has changed because of uh, the way business models have been built for profit, for advertising, for efficiency, not for, let's say, democracy, the public interest and uh, public values. 
The creator of the World Wide Web, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, reckons that a handful of firms have ended up with too much personal data and too much power. They have become platforms of surveillance and gatekeepers of innovation. He thinks that the solution lies in giving people control over their data. For the last few years, Berners-Lee has been working on a technology called Solid, a way for you to hold on to your data and allow websites or applications to access just what they need when they need it. And to do this, he formed a company called Inrupt to commercialise his technology and build an ecosystem around it. John Bruce is chief executive. What we're doing is based on an, an open source project that Tim had been working on for many years at MIT, which culminated in a platform called Solid. And what we're doing is we're taking that and really powering it along. And the essence of what we're doing is we're, I don't want to sound too trite here, but we're reconnecting people with their data. We are putting data in the hands of those who should have it and not necessarily in the hands of those who possibly take advantage of it. So imagine a world where all of the data that you create is, is in your remit, where you have access to it and you can permission access to it for, for application developers who say, you know, if you allow me to look at your data in particular ways, I can service you in, in ways that you, you can't experience today. So, so this notion of taking the data out of all of these silos that exist on the web and putting it in one place, which you control, is the essence of what we're doing. And actually, it's not just beneficial for users like you and I, it's also beneficial for those application developers because now they can say, well, wow, in a world where you will grant me access to a whole swathe of data, I can dream up some really, really powerful applications that will service you in, in, in ways you're going to enjoy. And then organizations can service us using those applications and, and they're, they're not bound by the limitations they currently suffer because they only have limited access to your data. And the way that the web works today, they have to take that data away in order to operate upon it. In this idea, your data is stored in personal online data stores, or pods, stored on your own devices or in the cloud. Organisations can access that data when they need it, but the data stays with you. Inrupt is working on a pilot project with the UK's National Health Service, for instance giving patients a single pod to host their medical data. In another programme, Inrupt is supporting the government of Flanders, providing pods to millions of citizens and storing things like birth, marriage and death certificates, and acting as the main interface for government services. There are commercial applications under experimentation too, in pilots for BT, Vodafone and NatWest. So there are obvious advantages in data privacy, but Bruce sees other advantages too. Organisations don't have to store, manage and keep safe all of this data, which can be complex, costly and risky to do. Organisations ought to get higher quality, more relevant data as well. Rather than data on our attributes and interests interpreted by algorithms, it's provided by us. We can give it more data, brought together from different sources. Bruce says all this will unleash innovation, in new applications and new business models. The way we look at things, you know, the web is somewhat stagnant at the moment. Innovation's stifled, and I think that's somewhat to do with the fact that it's very siloed. You know, there are big aggregations of data out there, and 
and we think there's a way better way to get value out of the web. Actually, the web that Tim originally imagined is what we're striving for. So, so we believe we can, with a lot of help, we can get the web to a much better place, a much more vibrant and open version of the web. And um, as a consequence of which we'll all, all have a, a, a way better existence. I mean, you know, end users will get innovative apps that are impossible today and organizations can service us in a way that's really good for them and they're not burdened by the responsibilities of taking away our data. And, and then developers can create fabulous applications that are not you know, constrained by the limitations of the way the web's turned out. So one criticism you face is that having more data, aggregated data, can be particularly valuable, not just for commercial applications, but also in scientific research and, and things like that. What room is there for this kind of aggregated, perhaps anonymized data in a world of personal pods and in which data is otherwise locked away? Yeah, I think that's, a good, again, a good point you make. It, 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 this notion of aggregated data having value for societal use or, or you know, constituencies on, on, a, on a large scale, I, I think, is very pertinent. And, and there's, of course, there's, there's merit in that on the web today. And, and, of, and, of course, we can keep it that way. I mean, I mean in the way the, the pods work, the good news is you can offer up data as you see fit to contribute to such research and you can then decide at whatever juncture you no longer want to participate and the data is no longer available. So, you know, when one's asked, look, we have this particular uh, um, societal benefit we think we can produce as a consequence of you sharing pieces of your data, AI can say, okay, I'll only let you have that data. You know, all the other stuff that oftentimes gets dragged along for the ride that you clearly don't need, you don't need access to that, so I'm going to give you the piece of data pertinent to the work that you're undertaking. And then secondarily, if I change my mind, I'm going to change permissioned access to it. So you will no longer have access to it. And, and, that, and that change might be a consequence of the research is over or, or candidly, as equally potent, I think, as the notion that I no longer trust you as a vendor. I, I think you've taken uh, some liberties with my data and so I'm no longer making it available. This podcast is supported by Pictay Wealth Management. Cesar Perez is CIO and Head of Investment at Pictay. He sees a need for change within the digital economy, and especially when it comes to the role of regulation. What is the trend? Big tech companies are attracting the attention of regulators and government from the US and Europe to China. The main issue they are trying to address is the concentration of power in the hands of a small number of companies. The winner-takes-all economics that govern the technology industry has encouraged firms to move fast and break things. But as our lives move in an increasingly digital direction, there are certain things we can't afford to let them break. But what can be done to curtail these problems? And is antitrust really the answer? The reality is that breaking up these companies won't change all that much. It is more likely to just create more unmanageable corporations, leaving the cash generation dynamics unchanged. Power might disperse, but it is hard to imagine that accountability will improve 
and less regulators enforce rules around privacy and governance. Breaking up big tech might also fail to address the issue of scale. It is the share of volume of users uploading content and interacting with each other that makes this platform popular. By breaking one up, regulators risk triggering a mass digital migration as people herd towards another platform that offers the diversity of ideas and inspiration that comes with scale. Instead, Cesar believes that regulation should focus on how technology is being used and misused. No one can expect a single company or group of companies to determine issues like how to regulate free speech online or what businesses' practices should be allowed in the digital economy. This involves values, principles, and norms that vary across contexts, where governments need to increase pressure on its platform handling of users' data, forces greater levels of transparency, and clamping down on the nefarious use of private information. Meanwhile, governments need to take greater responsibility for defining online behavior. Social media platforms should not be liable for the content posted on them. This would turn them into oversized newspapers. Banning social networks by making them liable for the content would also drive free speech into unregulated or encrypted corners of the internet, away from acceptable governance and social norms. Determining where liability lies and for what kind of content should be the first task of any regulator looking at how to deal with social media. Big tech companies have built powerful empires off data-driven business models, gathering data on our behavior and interactions online, and using this data to sell and better target advertising. This data is big business. Out of a combined $1.9 trillion market value of Google's parent company Alphabet and Facebook, three quarters of it is thought to derive from users' data. But much as we might want to control more of our information, you can't stop people collecting data. As more connected things around us, from smart speakers to cars to vacuum cleaners, hoover up more personal information about our behavior and preferences, the universe of data is only expanding. What has to happen eventually is we need to evolve a new situation that's less dependent on the tech giants. Jaron Lanier thinks we have the moral rights to this data and that we should get paid when companies use it. In the future, he wants to see the creation of new kinds of institutions akin to labor unions that lobby to compensate us more fairly for the value we create. And uh, in a similar way, there'll be hundreds of other new types of valuable data that appear as algorithms and robots and sensors and effectors of all kinds start to mature. And this is a process that will never end. He says our data will be worth a lot more collectively and reckons families could earn in the region of 20,000 US dollars a year from their data. You know, the, uh, Facebook will frequently uh, make a talking point to counter the arguments that I and others have brought up to say, well, if people were paid, it would be nothing. They would just be paid a pittance. Um, if we own their information, it's worth trillions of dollars. If they own their information, it's worth pennies, <laughs> you know, effectively. And of course, the difference has to do with who has the power. So if people with data unionized, then they would have the power and their data would be worth trillions of dollars instead of pennies. Lanier envisages the invention of a new kind of entity. He calls them MIDs, for mediators of individual data, 
that people sign up to just as they would sign up for something like car insurance today. With this approach, companies would be incentivized to come up with productive ways to use your data where they add value. But he also sees more traditional revenue-generating subscription models taking hold in one way or another. So, so as far as exactly how it'll work, there's quite a bit of latitude and I think quite a lot of invention and discovery to come to sort it out, but we can see the outlines of the possibilities. One option is a very fine-grained data marketplace where people are always earning and spending little tiny micropayments. That was the world I explored in a very rough poetic sense in my, in my book, Who Owns the Future? There are other uh, sort of coarser grain solutions where people pay subscriptions as they do now to Netflix and they get uh, paid in only one of a number of uh, tiers or something, just a much simpler system. And that's, that's another possibility. Lanier says stronger regulation is a certainty. The business models which rely on users' data and attention end up optimised to promote insightful content and are directly at fault for the spread of disinformation, polarising and hateful content online. It's, it's beyond debate that government has to play a role in a better internet at this point. As recently as a few weeks ago, many of my friends were arguing that it has to be a Wild West forever, that it has to be uh, something that's anarchic. Um, after the siege of the Capitol, there are very few people who are still saying that. Um, they're still very uncomfortable with the idea that a few corporations are deciding who to deplatform, which is a different question. And that is a, a, a deep problem with governance that has to be addressed. However, the notion that we can have something so important be free of some kind of formal governance, I think, has been disproven. It's, a, it's an imperative now. It's a matter of societal survival that we figure out governance for it. I wish it didn't take a siege of our capital to get to that lesson. Any number of particularly female activists who've been hounded to, to very serious consequences um, could have told us that earlier. But at any rate, I think at this point the evidence is in that whatever we might like, the truth is that we have no choice but to bring in more governance. We can't pretend this will happen easy. And so I think we have to conceive of our efforts in a short term versus a long term. In the short term, we are simply compelled to do something like what the major platforms have done of deplatforming the worst people who would destabilize society. But we have to do it in a way that is more accountable and more based in the society as a whole instead of just a few corporations. So um, Facebook's taken the step of creating this external board to evaluate deplatforming, and uh, they're going to take on the case of the former president in the U.S. now. But something like that shouldn't just be for Facebook. It has to become a thing for the Internet, because the problem with the Internet, of course, is that you can always come up with some new malicious host or something. And as a matter of societal survival, it's just, it's just the most fundamental imperative to remain functioning we have to, as a temporary measure, regulate these things. But what I hope is that these don't become encrusted permanently. And then we can adopt other principles, like the principle of new societal institutions, as I just proposed, or data dignity in the economy in order to disincentivize manipulative commercial schemes. I hope that we can use broader principles to bring the worst impulses of the internet under control, rather than these specific regulatory actions 
in the longer term, but in the short term, we just have no choice. And I, it pains me to say that. I wish I didn't have to say it. For Tim O'Reilly, the internet simply needs regulation that it has so far lacked. To allow and encourage companies to use our data to provide valuable products and services, but to do so fairly and transparently. O'Reilly thinks that that can be solved with some fairly simple regulation. And I think, you know, the European Commission has done a, a, a pretty good job. And, and there are companies, you know, like if you look at the pop-ups that are powered by a company like OneTrust, where they make a clear distinction between, you know, here are the, there's four classes of cookies that we set. You know, we, there are those that are essential. The service just won't work without them. Two, there are performance cookies that we use to track how our users uh, use the site, and that helps us serve you better. Three, uh, you know, we will uh, use it to, for, for advertising, and four, we'll sell it on, right? And, you know, like you can turn those off. But why don't we have the first two of those be the default? And somebody has to explicitly turn on. Again, I think it, it's such a simple set of regulations simply by making the business model of these companies be opt-in. And then you would say, yeah, Google requires advertising or they're not going to give me the service. Okay, I'll buy that. You know, Facebook requires advertising or they're not going to give me the service. And I would go, nah, nah, I'm going to skip it. You know, somebody else will say, yeah, I'll take that deal. Maritia Sharka says we need to rethink conventional notions of antitrust, which have historically focused on identifying practices that cost or disadvantage consumers. I think the infrastructure itself, in principle, allows for uh, all kinds of you know, business models or technological models, uh, hopefully not only business driven, which I think is part of the problem that brought us to where we are today. Um, I, I also think that in the in the makers community, in the civic tech space, there's a lot of uh, attempts to build better, to build alternatives, to build more public uh, infrastructure for for the web and for the digital world. So it's happening, but there there has to be uh, a sort of manifestation of, of clear rules of the road that will also create that enabling environment for alternatives to flourish. And so you have to look in the direction of antitrust that has to be better applied in the context of quote-unquote free services. I think to have clear standards about the way in which uh, personal data should be handled, but also have transparency so that people themselves are more aware of what's happening uh, is an important step to take. I think in the EU we've seen the clearest examples uh, as of yet through the general data protection regulation but also through new initiatives that look at the responsibilities that should come with market size and market power and also the, the expectations that exist uh, in, in relation to, um, to platforms beyond uh, the, uh, the antitrust rules for example. Um, but I think there's, there's a tension that we see more and more of, and that is that uh, data protection has been treated uh, as an individual right, the right to someone's privacy, uh, very much treated as you know, an individual. And therefore, we now hear proposals from, uh, from people who say, well, we need to talk about data ownership, uh, bring it back to the individual. Uh, what, is, what is not uh, often clear to people is how much collective uh, rights are also at stake when, you know, masses of data are gathered and from it you can discern all kinds of things, not only about the individual who may have quote-unquote consented, uh, but also about the society at large by deducing, you know, um, uh, information vis-a-vis -vis other people. And so I think we need to think also about the societal impact and not just the individual rights question here. 
every public company, you know, is bound by the principle that, you know, Milton Friedman articulated, uh, which is uh, the only responsibility of a company is to be, make more profit for its shareholders. Tim O'Reilly sees bigger forces at play. I, the thing that I think we need to understand about that is that relentless imperative that companies must keep growing, they must keep increasing their share price, is the original sin of our economy. Because, you know, up the, the whole beauty and the, the opportunity of the technologies we have today is to model and manage complex systems, to take hundreds of factors into account to come up with the best result. And instead, we have instructed our companies to build systems that optimize for one thing and one thing only. And, and I think a lot of it is like, we, we, we wanna have a scapegoat and tech is our current scapegoat. And I like to say, you know, we need to look at tech as a mirror of our society. They're doing the things that everyone else is doing. They're just showing us its next iteration with more power, more, more tools. And it's our chance to pull ourselves together and say, oh, that wasn't really what we meant. They didn't see the downsides, but we see them now. And it's our opportunity to use this tech moment to ask ourselves deeper questions about our economy as a whole. A more responsible, transparent, regulated internet may well be a more innovative place with more applications of civic value. The Wild West days of the internet are over, says Tim O'Reilly. And that's a good thing. We're actually taking energy away from the crazy internet economy and starting to focus on an economy that's addressing a set of urgent societal problems, i.e. climate change. And I actually think that we're going to see, you know, the next technology you know, revolutions are going to be in biotech, you know, healthcare related things, you know, COVID really accelerated a lot of that, uh, and in energy and clean tech. And so I, I think that the market in some sense will correct over the, you know, over the next decade and, and take some of the air out of this uh, crazy data-driven surveillance capitalism market. I don't think that the companies will self-regulate. I don't think that will actually get the kind of regulation that we need. And, you know, when I, when I, again, when I think personally about what we need, it's not, uh, you know, let's slap Facebook or Google or Amazon with some fines, uh, let's break them up. It's, it's like, how do we look at the fundamental uh, incentives of our economy, which are focused on, you know, on, on, on growth, which are focused on, you know, I mean, the betting economy, so to speak, you know, and, and how, how would we actually encourage investment in the operating economy? How would we use the tax system to encourage uh, investment in small businesses rather than global scale businesses? These are choices that we make as an economy. And, you know, our tax system, our financing system has just as much influence on the kinds of companies we create, the kinds of entrepreneurs we create, what we reward as Facebook's algorithm has in the, the behaviors and the types of content that it rewards. It's a set of choices that we make as a society. And I think we need a much more fundamental rethinking of how our economy works, what we tell our companies to optimize for.
That's it for this episode of New Foundations. If you liked what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks again to Pictay Wealth Management for their support. You can find out more about the series as well as articles and further reading at newfoundations.economist.com.